Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Derek Chollett, is the author of the new book, The Long Game, How Obama Defied Washington and Redefined America's Role in the World. Derek served in a number of foreign policy positions in the Obama administration, including in the National Security Council, State Department, and finally as an Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security. So needless to say, this book serves very much as an insider's assessment of seven years of Obama's foreign policy. And we kick off with an extended discussion about his book and Obama's foreign policy more broadly before pivoting to a conversation about Derek's fascinating career path from a college town in Nebraska to the highest reaches of U.S. foreign policymaking. The book is great. I will post a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com, where you can also find a contact button to get in touch with me, subscribe on iTunes, get the app. It's all free. And it's a great place to find our huge, now growing archive of long-form conversations about foreign policy and the people who make it. And now here is my conversation with Derek Chollett. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So the long game, which is the title of the book, has a double meaning. And the first uh, meaning that I that I talk about quite a bit in the book is President Obama's approach to America in the world and, and his foreign policy. And I argue in the book that Obama has what academics would call a grand strategy. He has a a view of American power and American leadership and its role in the world that is uh, reflects the totality of our interests. So it's it's not just about fixing one particular problem versus another, but trying to look at what America is doing in all the strategic arenas that matter the most to it to us, the most prominent regionally, Asia, Europe, and the Middle East, and and ensuring that we are leading and ensuring that we are engaged uh, in a diverse way, and we're engaged in terms of the problems we're trying to solve, but also uh, it's not just about our military power uh, alone, even though that's extremely important, and. And in the service of that strategy, he understands that it takes time to unfold, and it takes time and patience to uh, to stick with it. And that's it's playing a long game. And and one of the things I I try to get into in this book that uh, draws on my experiences in the Obama administration, but it's not a memoir of my experiences in the Obama administration. This is a little bit of an aside, but I mm-hmm. you know there's kind of a the there's two kinds of Washington books. Typically, for folks who've left government, there's the book 
that either says how all of your former colleagues screwed everything up and got it wrong, and yeah. if they'd only listened to yeah. you, it would be better. My favorite or of that kind genre, of, I should say, is John Bolton's memoir of 2008. Right, exactly. Right. Some are Against more robust enemies, and, and shameless than others in yeah. terms of how they go about doing this. Uh, but then the other kind of book is, you know, uh, and I'm being a bit facetious here, but it's, you know, the book that shows how the author uh, – played such an indispensable role and was in the middle of all these historic events, right? And so I try to break the mold a little bit in this book where clearly it draws on my experience, but it's not about my experience. And what I want to try to do is offer an, an inside perspective of Obama's decision-making, his his foreign policy approach, and the challenges to that approach. And that's the other important piece of this, which is Sometimes uh, I found, and I've been talking about the book quite a bit recently since it's been published, it's it's shorthanded as a defense of the Obama administration. And it certainly is a defense. I try not to be defensive uh, in terms of how I talk about it. But what I was also trying to achieve was an explanation. Uh, there's no question that there's huge challenges the U.S. is facing in the world, and there's there are disappointments that, and in some cases, very, very profound disappointments uh, in the world. But I I want to try to explain how we got to where we are, um, and so so and, and that's mm -hmm. and it's, that's what I so and it's playing a long game like it's part of the part of the the kind of underlying um, uh, theory here. But the the second meaning of the title, the long game, is I'm I'm I, I try in this book to offer an initial assessment of how we should think about Obama's foreign policy legacy. Now, I understand we have six months left in this administration, um, and there's history still yet to be made. But if you think of the, the debate we're having right now in terms of the campaign and the next presidency, it's very much about Obama's legacy and what has gone right, what's gone wrong in the last seven years. So I contend in this book that in history's long game, we will reflect back on the Obama years as ones that were quite positive for America and the world, uh, years of, of renewal of American leadership and a repositioning of the United States when it comes to approaching uh, certain problems around the world and, and, and being able to bring countries together uh, to try to solve problems and make people's lives better. So, so, so that's 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 in a nutshell the long game. So can we maybe disaggregate those two definitions and maybe you can sure. walk me through a few different examples or one example of of how um these uh different definitions of the long game are are being made manifest. So in terms of the uh grand strategy uh, approach, could you describe and I I know you do in your book um how uh, that idea, the the grand strategy, was implemented at a granular level. Like walk through a decision uh, that contributes to the the sort of grand strategy that you describe as as sort of uh, having a long strategy. Sure, and 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 you know this is what uh, you know Obama has what academics call a grand strategy. I don't, I never heard that phrase uttered inside the Situation Room. Um, but but when you think of of the kind of the uh the totality of american interests not just foreign policy but also the health of america here at home and and whether it's our economy or uh you know how we are changing as a country those are inex inextricably tied and there's there's no question that when president obama took office in 2008 
the United States was a declining power. We were we were we were a country that, of course, was in the middle of the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. We were you know there are eight hundred thousand Americans losing their jobs every month. We had entire sectors of the U.S. Uh, economy hanging in the balance, whether that was the auto industry or uh, the banking industry. Um, mm-hmm. And if you yeah. look at America abroad, the instruments of our power were 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 weakened. Uh, we were we'd spent you know eight years and difficult years post 9/11 uh, engaged in wars that that had been uh, for a variety of reasons a huge strategic setback for the United States and countries like China were very much on the march and taking advantage of our preoccupation and weakening of the, that had occurred during the 2000s. So in one aspect of the, of the long game of, of, of this grand strategy was to ensure that, first of all, the U.S. was strong at home. And oftentimes in foreign policy debates, uh, I'm struck that how any discussion of American strength at home, and, and, and Obama used a phrase often, this president called nation building at home, you know, he'd say it's time for nation building at home. And that would get derided by many foreign policy analysts as somehow, you know, uh, uh, Sort of inconsistent with a with a robust view for America in the world. Well, that's and that was also pro- like the rhetoric used by the Bush campaign in the two thousand, right? Um, they, right, of course, yeah, of yeah. course, right. I mean, so, I mean, sort of right. distinguish right. themselves I mean, that, that's the other... from Clinton's escapades in in the Balkans. Say, so, yeah, why absolutely, we, yeah. absolutely. I mean, that, that that's the other thing that's sort of, sort of puzzling about the debate about Obama is, and you, you raise an important point. Like this, was, President Bush governed in a very different way on foreign policy than he campaigned as a candidate for president in 2000, right? Because as you, as you mm-hmm. very rightly remind us, the critique of Clinton by Governor Bush and his team in 2000 was that Clinton was too promiscuous with the use of force around the world, was too willing to take on problems that weren't really ours to solve, yes. was frittering away American power and leadership by using it in, in ways that were sort of ill-disciplined mm-hmm. and and not consistent with our core interests. But of course, George Bush governed in a very different way. But if you look at Obama, he's actually governed in a way that's remarkably consistent with how he campaigned in 2008 in terms of the issues that he prioritized and how he talked about America's role in the world. Mm-hmm. And so this isn't the 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 the... Um, the frustration with Obama that's expressed, not just among Republicans, but many Democrats, is is puzzling to me because this is not an example of a president who's who's governed in a dramatically different way than than what he promised to do. He's largely set out to and set out. He's done, he's done what he set out to do. Whether it was, you know, trying to reduce nuclear weapons, engaging in diplomacy with countries like Iran and Cuba, uh, prioritizing issues like climate change, uh, withdrawing from Iraq, but also continuing to pursue a vigorous war against terrorists, rebalancing to Asia, renewing alliances. I mean, these are all things that mm-hmm. this administration, I think any objective observer would say it's accomplished. Now, the world is still very troubling. Uh, there's no question of that, but there's also, there is a question of how much of the troubles are about the United States. And more importantly, what sort of position is the United States in to deal with those challenges as they come? Um, so I think one example of implementing the long game is this idea that that a foreign policy that that one could argue that is is you know might accomplish some things abroad, but the consequence is a is a hollowing out of our power here at home is by definition not a successful foreign policy. So he he rightly focused on getting our economy back on track and renewing the instru- the elements of American power here at home. Um, the other part of the long game was. Uh, 
it I call it in the book it's 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 the rebalance effort but and it's and I think often the rebalance is only associated with Asia and of course the the so-called rebalance to Asia was extremely uh, important strategic move by president Obama mm-hmm. but there's a broader sense of rebalance. It's not just in terms of the priority sets when we think of regions. It's also the way that we having having greater balance uh, in the instruments of power that we have. It's not or that we use. It's not just reliance on the military alone. It's it's diplomacy and development alongside defense. So it's balance in how we engage problems. And so that was that was also a strategic shift that has occurred over the last eight years, again, I argue, leaves us in a better position to solve problems than we were in before. Yeah, I I suspect that a number of people listening to this podcast were maybe even in high school when Obama came to office and are now a few years out of college um, and perhaps didn't live through or didn't experience the disaster of of Bush foreign policy. So don't sort of feel it, I think, as viscerally as those of us who sort of watched it unfold um, while we were perhaps more mature in our our foreign policy understanding of the world. And that's what I try to do in the book is put the Obama years in this broader context, not Mm -hmm. just in terms of what occurred during the 2000s and the struggles the United States had during the 2000s and the debate about America's role in the world in the 2000s, which Barack Obama came directly out of. Of course, Mm -hmm. he came to national prominence because of the speech he gave in 2002 in opposition to the Iraq War. Uh, But there's a broader, even more broader context than that, which is the debate about America's role in the world uh, after the end of the Cold War, and in many ways the struggles of the 2000s were a continuation of the debates we've been having since 1989. So and that was actually a sub- that was the subject of a previous book I wrote about co-wrote with Jim Goldgeier, who's now at American University, about uh, America during the 1990s, called called America Between the Wars. Um, so can, can I ask you how you square your assessment uh, that uh, the Obama uh, that history will judge favorably Obama's foreign policy legacy with the reality uh, and the unbelievable tragedies that are unfolding in in Syria and Iraq today? Absolutely, yeah, and I think this. And I was someone in the government. Uh, I worked at the State Department, the White House, and the Pentagon during the six plus years I served in the Obama administration. And these were issues that I uh, spent a lot of time working on. And and I make very clear in the book, none of us who had a hand in working on Libya or Syria are pleased with where things are. I mean, these are, these are huge tragedies that, uh, uh, I mean, I, in Syria's case, I argue it's the greatest catastrophe of the post-Cold War era in terms of suffering and um, uh, the instability that's emanated from it. The challenge for the United States is what we do about it. And so what I try to do in the book is walk through the various debates we had internally, particularly when it came around to the use of force and the question of U.S. military involvement and in trying to address some of these challenges and and walk readers through the journey we were traveling internally about you know the risks of using force, the which, and also reminding everyone that we in fact are using force. This mythology that the U.S. is doing nothing is, is mythology. I mean, if you look at just the mm-hmm. intensity of our military operations that we have been conducting in Iraq and Syria every day since September of 2014, so almost two years now, uh, it's been quite 
uh, effective in, from a military perspective. I mean, latest estimates are we've retaken, with our support, the Iraqis and the Syrian opposition has retaken about 50% of the territory that ISIS has controlled. We've mm-hmm. killed a num- an estimated 20,000 ISIL fighters since September of 2014. So that's that's not military inaction by any stretch. But the the, the challenge we struggle with is is how do we how do we take action in Syria and try to affect the outcome there without it becoming the single focus of America in the world and that's and that's that's been the challenge because we can i can i worked at worked at the Pentagon and when I was there I spent a lot of time with colleagues on the joint staff and and at CENTCOM thinking through various things we could do militarily to try to affect the outcome in Syria and we're doing some of those things today but what we always bumped up against was escalation and the risk that this could become a a crisis that would envelop and consume all of American foreign policy. And, and again, taking us back into history, which is important here, which is the narrative that we had of in the 2000s that we that when President Obama was elected and came in office was that the United States, for a variety of reasons that we'll continue to debate for many many years, had become overinvested in trying to change militarily things in the Middle East. And at the expense of that was our position in Asia, was our position in Europe, was our position around the world to try to bring about positive change. Um, and we wanted to try to avoid that imbalance from coming back again. Now, it's not to say we, we you know, we tried to stay out completely. And I, I just don't think that the facts bear that out. But uh, but it was trying to achieve that balance where we can affect the outcome but do so in a way that does not harm our larger interests, trying to keep the long game in mind. And I think, you know, what I hope readers take away from reading the book, even if they end up still disagreeing with the approach Obama's landed on uh, when it comes to a situation like Syria, is just how hard this is. That we, there are no silver bullets to this, to these crises. I mean, you know, I, I, I think back to the debates we had, and I, I talk about this very honestly in the book. I didn't win every policy debate internally, um, uh, in terms of what I thought we could be doing or should be doing. And in retrospect, there are things, uh, we could be doing differently, but I can't say today, even, even with those, those different policies in mind that it would have made a, a, major major change in the outcome on the ground in situations like Libya and Syria and so and that's that's a difficult one for us to handle um i so so looking at the at the at sort of the the next administration and you know chances are it'll, it'll be hillary um you know uh, uh i know you have worked in the state department uh, you know on, with her uh, under her um how concerned are you then that sort of her attitude, her her foreign policy sort of disposition uh, differs from uh, Obama in sort of that kind of fundamental way in which Obama seems to be guided by uh, these principles of, of restraint that you that you describe that um, sort of have led him sort of to to um, not escalate in in the Middle East? Well, I again, it's. To me, it's not restraint for restraint's sake, right? This is not a situation where, um, you know, and I think this is kind of a fallacy of of Obama's foreign policy that this idea that kind of we're this withdrawn country that that doesn't really engage in problems and you know we try we're trying to stay out of everything. I mean, 
we are more engaged in more places, in more ways than we were eight years ago. Uh, and part of the problem with the debate we have about America and the world is that it gets solely focused on what are you doing militarily? Mm-hmm. Um, now we're doing a lot militarily. I mean, we have, I mean, just even take the Middle East, for example, we have more forces in the Middle East today, far more than we did had pre nine 11. Uh, we, uh, are, you know, our, our core security relationships, we're doing more in terms of arms sales to the Gulf Arab partners or support for Israel militarily than we did eight years ago. So, I mean, it seems to me this is kind of the perversity of the Washington debate a bit, Mm -hmm. which is that the the sole metric is, do you have 150,000 troops in Iraq or not? Right? It's not, it's, I mean, so I think part of what Obama's tried to do, and this gets to your, your question about Secretary Clinton, is, is offer a more subtle, uh, uh, sophisticated uh, definition of strength and American power than just military force alone. And, you know, I, Secretary Clinton and, and President Obama were extremely close, successful partners when she was Secretary of State and he was president. I mean, whether it was the initial diplomatic effort with Iran or the rebalance to Asia or the approach to, oh. approach to the Middle East, they were they were uh, they were in lockstep. Now she has on the campaign trail articulated some areas that currently where she would do things differently. Um, but it, to my mind, and, and I worked for both of them, this is not a 180 degree shift no. from where we are today. I mean, this is these are. I mean, they they were two uh, extremely smart, uh, successful leaders, and they clearly didn't agree on every single thing, but they agreed on far more than they disagreed on, and particularly on this, on this uh, approach, uh, this overall approach to America and the world. And, and that's where I think the, the, um, you know, the contrast that's being offered right now in this campaign could not be starker and between Secretary Clinton and Donald Trump. I mean, Trump in many ways offers the, the exact pure form opposite of everything Obama's been about and Secretary Clinton's been about in terms of American foreign policy. So, um, yeah. so I see, I mean, largely it's a story of continuity, although of course there'll be changes. And and I think that, that and Secretary Clinton's talked about some of the shifts that, that she would make, but I found them, I think the story of the Clinton-Obama partnership is one about how well it worked, not how different they were. Um, so we were talking earlier uh, about the the Bush years, and you first came on my radar during the Bush years uh, when you were a contributor to that great old blog, Democracy Arsenal. Mm. Yes, yes. Uh, One of the early blogs. It was, uh, it was. It was, yeah. it was a pioneer. Uh, and I counted on you for uh, insightful criticism and, and analysis of, of Bush foreign policy. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you have this, this new book out, uh, and I am interested in learning more uh, about you and where you came from and how you got to where you got to. So where are you from? I'm from Lincoln, Nebraska. Okay, a hotbed. I bleed. I, I bleed Husker red. Okay, so so uh, were your was your family in in academia? They were. So my 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 dad is a professor at University of Nebraska. What did he teach? Uh, he's a prof- he's a professor of plant biochemistry. So okay. he he you know I not 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 about foreign policy, not about politics. My mom is a, is a nurse. Uh, at, a, at a chemical dependency unit at the uh, 
at the, at the hospitals worked at the, both of them worked in the same place for 40 years, you know, so they look at someone like me who's had a more typical Washington experience of a new job every couple of years. And they, they wonder why I can't hold down a job. Um, it's and, horrifying, uh, really. I, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, uh, but I went to college at, at Cornell university in New York and, okay. and decided to escape I had the, the Midwest. Yeah, exactly. But I, you know, and I, I went to Ithaca, in Ithaca, I don't know uh, how many of your listeners are familiar with Ithaca, but Ithaca is a wonderful town in upstate New York. And many of my fellow students were from urban areas, New York or Philly or LA, wherever. And they all thought Ithaca was a small little town. And I've compared to Lincoln, it was, you know, it's a, it's a great college town. It's got a lot to offer, uh, uh, you know, really rich arts and did and you know intellectual you wanted community to go there. into foreign policy issues? No, in fact, there? in fact, I really partly it's growing up in Nebraska, you know, where almost everything happens elsewhere. You know, when you grow up in the Midwest, and it, it, you know you're you're very proud of what you got, but you you know you kind of look you're you spend most of your time looking out at the world if things going on somewhere else and. Um, and when I went to college, I was very interested in American politics and American history. And, and I had the, the good fortune, I think, like so many people in college are shaped by events that occur while you're in those during those formative years of your life. And I started uh, Cornell in the fall of 1989. And of course, it was just a few months into that, into my fall semester, November 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell. And if you think back to those years in American history, 1989 to 1993, the years I was in college, they were tremendously momentous years for America and the world from the fall of the wall and the collapse of the Soviet empire and the reunification of Germany and the first Persian Gulf war, Saddam invades Kuwait in August of 1990 between my freshman and sophomore years. A year later, the, in August of 1991, between my junior and senior years, uh, or sorry, uh, sophomore and junior is the Soviet Union falls apart. And then, of course, in 1992, we have a, an important presidential election here in the United States. So I was very, became very interested in American foreign policy, America, the world. How, how did that interest manifest that self? Like, how did you engage with those issues? Well, I mean, in college, it was, I just started taking a lot of classes on foreign policy. And, and I, and, you know, back in the day, this is going to, this is going to date me quite a bit, but I thought I would be a Soviet expert, right? So I could, I was very interested in U.S.-Soviet relations, and then obviously as the Soviet Union started to collapse, very interested in that. So I spent, a, took, you know, took a lot of courses on the Soviet Union, um, and uh, but also was remained very interested in U.S. politics. So I think I soon, I soon figured out that my my interests were in about American foreign policy, not you know, and so how America engages with these problems, not so much from the outside in. So I, I, and I still to this day, I would never presume to be a Middle East expert or a Russia expert or a China expert. I know a little about a lot of issues, but I, I, I think of myself more as someone who's a student and practitioner of American foreign policy. And that part of that is understanding not just the world, but how our system works here and the intersection of politics and policy in Washington. So, so how did you get uh, your, your sort of first experience, your first job in, in sort of the, the foreign policy making machine? Well, I, I, like many people uh, who start out in Washington, I, I had a series of internships. It started with my, uh, the summer between my sophomore and juniors in college with my home state senator, uh, then Senator J. James Exon from Nebraska, who's 
passed away. Uh, and I worked for him, but I worked, he was on the Senate Armed Services Committee. So one of the reasons, one of the, my issues when I worked with him as an intern was helping him on armed services issues. But then I had a series of other internships. And most important was uh, in the summer of 1992, so 24 years ago, I was the intern on the policy planning staff at the State Department. James Baker was the Secretary of State. Dennis Ross was the Director of Policy Planning. Bill Burns uh, was the Deputy Director, and I was the intern. Uh, And uh, it was a wonderful time to be at the State Department, to be working uh, uh, on the seventh floor. Uh, Now, I was the intern, so I I don't want to... That's such a heady yeah. bunch. What was your role as the intern there? I mean, did you find I, you yourself know, doing actually it, substantive work? I, I, you know, a little. I mean, I was an intern, so I I spent a lot of time, you know, kind of like a research assistant in many ways to mm-hmm. the to the folks on the staff doing the work. But there were because it was such a a busy time, uh, and because the the one of the things you learn for those of you who've been in government, you know this, but it, you're always shocked to see how. Uh, how stretched everyone is in government. You assume oh, the U.S. government's huge and there's just all these people who work. And it is a big bureaucracy, but you're often struck how few people there are to actually get the work done. So one of the benefits of being the intern is as stuff just started coming fast, I ended up getting asked to do some uh, some substantive work that, you know, was was – uh, they had enough confidence me in me as the intern to be able to get that done. Do you remember so, like one substantive thing you did? Yeah, well, I remember is it was in the summer of 1992. Boris Yeltsin, who was then the new new president of uh, newly independent Russia, uh, came to Washington for his first summit with George H. W. Bush, and there was some you know talking points that I was asked to to help contribute to that were used by various senior State Department officials uh, in those in in those meetings. And again, I don't I don't want to pres- convey at all that I was the mastermind behind anything, but it was it was yeah. it was beyond just your typical photocopying and you know getting people cups of coffee that interns normally Russian do. I mean, policy. It, there you go. Yeah, no, as, no, no. But I, I actually but it was yeah. it felt very important to me. Um, but but you know as any as any good internship does, it was it was Obviously, I did my fair share, and mostly what I did was kind of the grunt work of being an intern, but I was given enough substance that I had to, you know, uh, understand how work got done. But then also, I was able to work with fantastic people, and someone like Den- people like Dennis Ross or Bill Burns are people who I are still mentors of mine today. I mean, 24 years later, people I still – I just was with Bill Burns earlier this morning at an event. And, and I should um, say he was the former deputy uh, secretary. He, he Probably the most one of the most distinguished career diplomats in US, yeah. modern U.S. history was the former deputy secretary of state, ambassador to Russia, ambassador to Jordan yeah. – uh, you know, and now he's the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International right, Peace. Right. Yeah, he took over from uh, Jessica Matthews. Exact Matthews, exactly. So, uh, you know, so being able to learn just by observing how people like that operate was an education in and of itself. And then that 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 experience led not by design, but led to my first job after college, which. Uh, and just to put every, put your listeners back into kind of con- in the chronology here, 1992 election, Bill Clinton gets elected. George H. W. Bush is, was the president. He's leaving office, and James Baker, who had been 
Bush's Secretary of State, but had before that been Ronald Reagan's Secretary of the Treasury and Ronald Reagan's Chief of Staff at the White House, was leaving government after 12 years of being at the epicenter of, of policymaking here in Washington. And he was putting together his post-government life, and one of the things he was going to do was write a memoir. And because of my experience with Dennis Ross and Bill Burns and others who were so close to Secretary Baker, they put my name forward to be Baker's research assistant oh, as he cool. was going out to write his memoirs. And so I ended up doing that. So was that uh, the kind of memoir? For, I had, for I had two not, years. I have not read that memoir. Which, which um, category of memoir does, does Baker's memoir fall into? Well, it, it is it is definitely the latter, meaning the the uh, uh, putting putting oneself in the middle of history. Although in Baker's case, it actually is all true. Yeah. I mean, he, I mean, he was much there. he was a he was a hugely important, influential yeah. Secretary of State at one of the pivotal moments in American history, and was in the middle of all of these issues: the Gulf War, German unification, the collapse of the Soviet Empire, Israel Palestine. Uh, Israel-Palestine, exactly. All of those issues. Mm -hmm. uh, Baker's book actually is not the former. It's not the score-settling, you know, my colleagues all were idiot type book. In fact, if anything, I remember vividly his publisher wanted more of that because that's what they thought would sell books, yeah. right? Uh, no, Baker's book is an extremely serious diplomatic history of, of four pivotal years in American that, yeah. foreign policy. It's very, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but it's a it's it's a it's quite a good mm -hmm. memoir but that 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 two years of experience working with him was a tremendous apprenticeship because again i was the research assistant i wasn't the guy writing the book i wasn't the person you know i was i was you know a humble research assistant uh but Obviously, I worked very closely with Secretary Baker during those years, and and part of and my job, what I got paid to do for two years, was to know that history backwards and forwards. You know, to I mean, there was a time in my life I've long since forgotten this, but there was a time in my life during those years when, if you had said to me what happened in the second week of September of 1990, and I could have told you what Secretary Baker's schedule was that week, you know, where he was traveling to, because that was my job as the research assistant was to know all of that. Do you have any good stories and, of your personal interactions with him? And uh, that might sort of illuminate how he related to someone like a, his research assistant. Like how did he treat well, you? And, and what, what, what were oh, he was, he was an, he was an incredibly, and is an incredibly generous person uh, and thinker. He was not at all a person who, uh, you know, I mean, he, he treated people like me. I mean, I was this 20 something research assistant. He could have easily just dismissed me as sort of the, the gopher, but he, he, you know, wanted my opinion. He wanted my insights. Uh, and, and of course he was an extraordinarily busy person then. So he was doing much more than just writing a book. He was giving speeches and he was still very active in public life. Uh, uh, and so I ended up getting a lot of other experiences working for him in addition to being the research assistant, you know, helping him with speech writing, helping him with, uh, you know, the policy projects that he would take on as a former secretary of state. And so that was an education as well. And so, um, I mean, I, I didn't appreciate it as much at the time just because it was my job. So yeah. I thought of it as a job. But I have, you know, throughout my career often reflected on 
that period of my life and what I learned by being able to work at his side for two years. So I, I know we got you have like 12 minutes left. So uh, I just would love to learn a, a bit more about your experience in, in the Obama administration. Um, it's funny because I, I like followed your work in, in the Bush years. And so I kind of know what you're up to in the think tank world and, and writing and, and policy writing. Uh, and it was actually very helpful to someone like me, a sort of a young journalist trying to make sense of, of Bush foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy. But uh, I would love to learn how you joined the Obama administration and and uh, sort of what, like, how, how that happened? Like, how, how does someone like you sure. has, has the experience yeah. enter, enter an administration? Yeah. So I, uh, uh, in sort of brief form, I, I had worked uh, for John Edwards, uh, the mm -hmm. North Carolina senator who unfortunately disgraced himself in a, in a scandal. So much promise. Uh, he had so much promise. So, exactly. I always like to clarify, I worked for Edwards in the good years. Yeah. Uh, but I, it was a wonderful experience working for Edwards in the early 2000s, I worked on the Senate staff, and then uh, 12 years ago when he was uh, the vice presidential nominee, I've been reflecting on that recently as we're about to, you know, we're having the presidential, the vice presidential nominees unveiled where I was 12 years ago because I was part of Edwards' team. And where were you when you got him. the call? Or did you, when you found uh, out? I was on his, so I was on his Senate staff, and I, I think I was on my way to Capitol Hill for work, and I got, he got the call, and I got the call, and I ended up diverting off the Metro, uh, from at Metro Center, for those of you familiar with Washington, rather than going to Capitol Hill, I went to the Metro, I got off of Metro Center to get, to go to Cary headquarters. I was given a call by one of my, the Cary people to say, you know, get your butt into the headquarters because, yeah. Yeah, Your guy is now the vice presidential nominee. Yeah. So, uh, um, and then I ended up leaving the Senate staff and traveling full time with Senator Edwards as the uh, as the as his foreign policy person on the campaign. And so, because of that, I ended up working with a lot of people in you know who went on to prominent roles in the Obama administration. Susan Rice was a very close colleague. Dennis McDonough. Um, you know, many many others, and who were part of the Democratic foreign policy world. And so during the years when I was writing for blogs like Democracy Arsenal and working at think tanks like CNAS, uh, I was part of the the large circle of Democrats on the outside who were trying to think seriously about the world and America's role in the world and American national security policy. And so when President Obama was elected, uh, you know, one of the benefits I had, I should back up to say, because I'd been affiliated with Edwards for so long, I was able to stay out of the the 2008 primary battle between yeah. Secretary Clinton and Obama, right? I mean, we forget now because of how well they get along, but that was a quite intense primary campaign that I was, that I was not, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, since I was with Edwards, I kind of could be the Switzerland in a way between, um, between the two That's superpowers. That's funny because I, I do remember there being grumbling uh, among Obama foreign policy people that because Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, that sort of they got kind of shut out of some foreign policy right. jobs that otherwise probably would have gone to them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's a fair it's fair. I mean, because there were certain people who were, you know, more part of the Clinton world who ended up working at the State Department that obviously had she not been Secretary of State, they probably wouldn't have. But, mm -hmm. you know, my general experience having again, I served the administration long enough, I saw people start and come back, you know, leave and come back. I saw people not get jobs initially, but then now they're, you know, doing prominent things. I mean, it all tended to work out for everybody. So uh, how did you and get so the I, call was, to, I, to I was join. on the transition team. Yeah. I was on the 
I, in October of 2008, I got a call from Susan Rice, who I knew quite well. And Susan said, you know, we're going to, we're starting up the transition process and there's, it's changed a little bit now, but then it was, you could, they had each can, each campaign had a certain number of people that they would start the, the, getting the security clearances for. So the idea was so, you know, the day after the election, the transition could start. So I was one of those people. So I served on the transition team and I was helping on the NSC transition during uh, November, December 2008 and January 2009. And then I had a job interview with Secretary Clinton during that time uh, to go work with her at the State Department. And I never worked with her before. What was that? Oh, it was terrific. Yeah, it was terrific. How how does that work? I mean, it was like, like, walk me through that, that, that experience, that moment. Well, it was, it was in her Senate office uh, and it was, uh, it was a job interview and, and certain, you know, several of her senior advisors were in the interview with her and it was very much a conversation about the team she was trying to build and, and the role that she thought someone like me could play. And I was, I was up, the job we were talking about was the deputy director of policy planning. So it mm-hmm. sort of, for me, was a coming full circle from where my career began in yeah. many ways because it was going back to the policy planning staff. Did you reference take, your experience as an intern? Oh, yeah. For, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. And, and in fact, I vividly remember after I ex- accepted the job, uh, which I basically did on the spot, uh, I um, I received a call from Bill Burns, who I'd stayed in touch with, and Bill then was the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, so the number three person in the in the State Department. And he called me to congratulate me, and we had this moment where we were both reflecting on the fact that when we had first met one another, and I was a twenty-something intern in college, he was the deputy director of policy planning, and so I was taking the job that uh-huh. he once had when I met him, uh, when I first met him. So. Do you're- uh, Do you remember like, anyway, a specific so, question that that Secretary Clinton or then Senator Clinton asked you, and and what it says sort of about her? Well, it was. I mean, I don't remember specific question because it wasn't like an inquisition. I mean, it was more of a conversation about how she saw the role of Secretary of State and how she saw the importance of building a team. And I think that's something that's that you've seen. You saw with Secretary Clinton both at the State Department. You've certainly seen during this campaign that she understands the importance of having a strong team and having people around her that she trusts and having people who are quite good at their jobs. And so that was something, you know, again, she didn't, we didn't have a prior relationship at all. So this was something we were talking through that. And since I had worked for previous secretaries of state and thought about the state department, we, you know, talk asking for my advice about various things in the state department and the way that, that, uh, I thought state, the state could, could, could run, be run, uh, did you so know Anne Marie Slaughter ahead of time? Who who was the I didn't policy? actually. So, so I knew she, she I was knew Anne Marie right? exactly. Yeah. So I knew Anne Marie a bit. Like we had, we were both. She was also part of this broad community of folks outside of government during the two thousands who were trying to think seriously about U.S. national security issues. But we were not. We were not. Um, but I, I did not. Never worked for her before. I, you know, we'd only met a few times. So, you know, clearly that was also, uh, I think, very much in Secretary Clinton's mind as well. And that Amory was obviously, you know, one of the leading thinkers in the country, distinguished uh, 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 foreign policy leader, dean at Princeton. I was more of an inside guy. I'd had a lot of inside Washington experience, work on the Hill, work on campaigns, you know, had done some think tank stuff, but was far more of kind of an inside player. 
and so we complemented each other quite well, I thought. So and I think that was part of the logic. So we just have, have a few minutes left, but I would love to learn what it was like working with uh, Chuck Hagel, you know, fellow Nebraskan. And, and yeah. he, um, so, so the first job that Chuck Hagel had after the Senate was to teach a grad school class at Georgetown, and I was in that class. Yep. Um, and it oh, was, really? That's so, he loved yeah. teaching the class. Yeah, I he loved talked it. often it was, about that. Yeah. It was great. It was great. So yeah, it was yeah. a pretty small class. There was only like maybe 25 of us. And like a good politician, he knew everyone's name after the first like yep. 10 minutes of, of yep. being in class, as opposed yep. to regular teachers who would you know, not know your name until you know, halfway through the yeah. semester. But no, it was, it was a fantastic class. Interesting guy. What was it like sort of working directly with him? Because you know, I get the impression like, like intellectually and philosophically, he's very simpatico with, with Barack Obama's sort of way of looking at the world. Um, but perhaps logistically, there, there were some hiccups uh, along the way. Well, I look, one of the great pleasures of my life has was worked for Secretary Hagel. I mean, I when I reflect on my career thus far, I've been truly blessed with great bosses. I mean, I have worked for uh nine foreign policy leaders, you know, so people who are who were in senior jobs and when I say worked not just by, you know, I worked directly for them. I either helped them, you know, I I wrote for them. I helped them think through problems, and uh, uh, you know that's James Baker and Warren Christopher, Richard Holbrook, Strobe Talbot, John Edwards, Tom Donilon, Hillary Clinton, Leon Panetta, and Chuck Hagel. So that's nine, and all of them. I mean, I've been very lucky because they all were obviously hugely talented um, in their own ways, and and were good to me. Uh, uh, and I feel lucky that I've had such good bosses. Not that I not that I ever had not that I never had. Uh, uh, easy days, you know, it was meaning, um, you know, different challenges were presented with each, with each one of those folks. But, um, but Hegel was, you know, first of all, obviously he's very loyal to the state of Nebraska as am I. Yes. Um, and that was a, that was wonderful for me just to be working for a Nebraskan and someone who, who we spoke the same language, you know, we, we, it, we were, we were fast, uh, friends in that way. And, uh, you know, it was nothing. There's no better way, in my view, to break the ice in a tense meeting to, you know, when you're sitting down to talk about what to do about Syria or Russia. And we could at least spend the first 30 seconds catching up on Nebraska football. Right. And mm-hmm. of course, the way Nebraska football has been going recently, sometimes it didn't help the com- help the mood much. Uh-huh. But but uh, um, but that was that was a real pleasure. And Secretary and, and Secretary Hagel um, for. So the issues that I worked at the Defense Department, and I was I was an assistant secretary responsible for Europe, Middle East, Africa, and Latin America. And what I what I did a lot of in my job was defense diplomacy, is what I called it, which was the interaction with foreign officials, other defense leaders around the world about uh, military issues, to, you know, what we were doing, and in, in, uh, in, to de- try to deal with certain problems. And Secretary Hagel was was a terrific diplomat. He was extremely uh, effective with his foreign counterparts. He had strong relationships with many defense ministers around the world. By the way, I should say Secretary Panetta was, was similar that way. They were both kind of, in some ways, old school politicians, uh, both Panetta and Hegel were. I mean, they're, they're, they're very like, glad handing, you know, very like gregarious. Very much. Yeah, yeah. They're like, great. Yeah. Exactly. And they're, they're both kind of a it's a rarer species in today's Washington, unfortunately, both for Panetta and Hegel. And I think they would like, uh, they would both admit that, that, um, and they thought, they thought about the complete picture. They weren't just 
policy wonks. They weren't just defense experts. They were people who understood the intersection of Congress and the executive branch and budgets and policy and the press. And so it was very effective that way. And one of the things I certainly learned in the Defense Department is that, you know, those of us in the foreign policy debate tend to think of the Secretary of Defense solely in terms of traditional foreign policy issues, you know, military intervention in place X, right? And that's that's clearly the most important part of the job, but arguably a bigger part of the job in terms of just the time that a secretary spends is on the maintenance and and modernization and sustaining the American military men and women in, in uniform. The you know the a lot of it's kind of de- it's dealing with the Hill. It's dealing with you know issues that aren't about national security directly, but issues like I mean, think of this past seven years: gays in the military, women in combat, uh, some more social issues, dealing with healthcare reform within the military, dealing with weapons acquisition uh, and the procurement process. I mean, these are things that are hugely consequential for our country, but oftentimes they're underappreciated by the more traditional foreign policy debate. So Haeckel was quite good at, at that stuff. Now, he, you know, this was clearly a difficult time period in, in American national security policy. And I think his, uh, you know, he, he had a good run. It didn't probably end the way he wanted it to, but I think my sense is he looks back obviously with admiration on the president and appreciation for the role that he played. And, um, you know, I think we were able to get a lot of good done and, and also deal with some really tough challenges, uh, many of which I get into in the book, whether it's Egypt, where Secretary Hegel is really on the front line of trying to deal with the 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 transition of power in Egypt from Morsi to al-Sisi. And Secretary Hegel spent, you know, hours and hours and hours on the phone with al-Sisi trying to encourage him to do the right thing during that really intense period in the summer of 2013. Uh, and and uh uh, also, obviously, the relationship with our allies and getting the counter-ISIL campaign started up uh, in the fall of 2013 or 2014 was something that uh, Hegel played a pretty very important role in. Uh, well, Derek, we're out of time, but thank you so much for your time for this book, uh, which I think students of U.S. foreign policy will, will really, really appreciate. Thanks. Well, I really appreciate your time and I appreciate your listeners uh, for spending some time with us. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Derek. Go out and check out his book. Um, I am going to take a probably about a week off. So this will be the last episode for probably about a week or so. And then we'll be roaring back come, you know, second week of August or so. Take a break. Maybe read a book or maybe listen to some episodes, some older episodes that you haven't listened to it's all available. It's all free. And most of these conversations are, are pretty timeless. So go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out some of those older episodes if you so like. I will see you later. Bye.